that it doesn't seem right that I'm preaching this morning because historically I've only done it on holidays. Um, I was supposed to do it like right after Christmas and Greg actually filled in for me when I was sick and then I did Valentine's Day and the 4th of July. So I had to look up what today's holidays were <laughs> and in case you're wondering, uh, today is International Cat Day. Um, in certain countries, I think it was uh, Samoa, Taiwan, Mongolia, and Brazil, it's Father's Day. So if you are a father from there, joining us this morning, happy Father's Day. Um, in Japan, it is Mountain Day. It's a day to enjoy the mountains and the blessings received from the mountains. But the most interesting one I found was that in Turkmenistan, Today is Melon Day. Um, it is a day to celebrate the uh, Turkmenbasi melon, which is of the musk melon family, that is said to have a taste that is reminiscent of the fruit of paradise. And it's actually named after their first president. So it's a big deal for them. And I'm not just telling stories. We're, I say this because this morning... As you know, we pray for a different people group each morning. Um, so this morning, we're going to be praying for the Turkmen people of Turkmenistan. Um, and we also pray for another church in our community. And we're going to be praying for um, Pecan Grove, just right across the street over here. And so join me, and we will continue our morning in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we just thank you that you have brought us together this morning, that you have given um, given us health to be able to be here, um, or health to join us online, and technology to join us online as well. Father, we ask you would bless this morning. Um, may we be filled up by your word and equipped to go out from here. We want to lift up Pecan Grove Church um, right across the street, Lord. Um, is there an elder-led body with rotating preachers? I don't know who's uh, preaching this morning, but we ask that you would be with their elder body, with Richard, Paul, John, and Glenn, that they would be filled with wisdom from above. Um, we ask for health in their body, um, both physically and spiritually, and just that they would enjoy your word, and that, that together with them, that we could come alongside them and just love this community well and be salty, bright, and aromatic for you. Lord, too, we want to lift up the Turkmen people group. Um, within Turkmenistan, 4.6 million people almost 8 million people worldwide. Primarily Islam um, is their religion, Lord, but we know that you have people among them. Lord, they're 0.05% Christian, and in their home country is one of the most difficult countries to reach. But we know that you are work there. Lord, we ask that you would work in them and soften their hearts, that you would equip workers to get into their country, to take the word into their country, and to reach these people, because we know that there are people for you, and that you have people among them that you have called to be yours. Lord, we thank you, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Um, so last week, for those of you that were here or were able to watch online later, um, Terry talked about earthly wisdom versus wisdom from above. 
Today we're going to be kind of looking at the application of that wisdom. Um, and if you recall, when we looked at uh, wisdom in the introduction of the book of Job, we kind of put a definition with um, biblical wisdom that it is the application of knowledge, or the right application of knowledge. Or, as James puts it here, this application looks like friendship with the world or friendship with God. And um, being that wisdom is a key theme in the book of James, he's showing us in this kind of exemplifying what it looks like to live out this wisdom um, in the passage that we're in today. So if you would, please uh, stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and let your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Lord, we ask that you would just speak to us this morning through this word. You would speak clearly through me, and that you would equip us and um, just build us up in this word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, we're going to look at this in two different sections this morning. First, what does this friendship with the world look like? And second, what does friendship with God look like? James starts this passage talking about quarrels and fighting and wars among the people. And we've got to remember that this is talking about the people within the body. These are quarrels and fighting that are happening within a church body. Now, the question is, is this real wars, real fighting, real actual physical violence. And there were violent groups around at this time. Um, one of the main Jewish groups that was radical is the Zealots, um, and they did pursue violence. And there was violence between them and other Jewish groups. So there is potential that some of that carried over into this early, very Jewish context of a Christian church. Um, however, the Zealots, really, they didn't rise to um, their height until about uh, 20, 30, 40 years after this. Um, they were around, but given the rest of the passage, it doesn't look like he's necessarily talking about direct physical violence. Um, you see right before this a passage about speech, and this is all kind of within a development of what that speech looks like. And we do know that murder as a result of jealousy is nothing new. From the very beginning, in the story of Cain and Abel, there was murder as a result of jealousy. 
So that is a possibility. But given that the book of James often is reteaching or reflecting on the teachings from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to follow that this is probably um, following how Jesus taught, equating murder with anger and words of malice. If you look in uh, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Proverbs 15 tells us, too, that a harsh word stirs up anger. James is reflecting on this to his audience, saying that there is quarreling and wars and fighting among you because of the way you are speaking and the way you are treating each other. Why is this happening? He goes on to say that it's a result of your passions of the flesh. Or, in following what Terry talked about last week, it's a result of this earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. You see, worldly wisdom views life from a limited perspective, not in the light of eternity, but in views of a very um, immediate impact. What's in it for me? How can I get the quickest self-advancement and the self-pleasure right now? It's motivated by self-centered ambition and insatiable passions. Our desires for self-advancement create conflict with others because we see ourselves as the most important, and we don't hesitate to neglect others or to step on others to get what we want, or in some cases, as James is talking about here, to take from others. Very clearly a violation of the Tenth Commandment not to covet. This is what James is bringing into this. What he's not saying is that there's no place for healthy degree healthy disagreements, or that healthy disagreements can't exist. Or, he's also not saying that unity is equivalent to uniformity or unanimity. Merely, he's saying that there's a larger agreement to not let disagreements destroy deeper bonds. Our problem is that, sadly, in many Christian contexts, there's a lack of sufficient unity and commitment to one another in the first place. Earthly wisdom robs us of relationship that is full of love and intimacy and trust. It robs us of our fellowship among each other and harmony within the body. It produces anger and impurity, bitterness, resentment, divisions, and in many cases, divorce from one another. James 2 talks about how it affects our desires and our asking and how we approach God in prayer. He talks here in verses 2 and 3. Let me flip back here real quick. Um, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And I think there's one, we could spend a whole sermon on this, honestly. Um, or multiple sermons, but one thing about this passage is this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not telling us, giving us a litany of how to ask God to get the things that we want. 
It's saying that when you are friending the world, when you are a friend of the world, when you are following worldly passions, you're going to be asking wrongly, or you're just not even going to be asking at all because you're not mindful of God. We treat God sometimes, when we're in this state of mind, as a vending machine, looking for health and wealth and advancement in our social status. Or you might say we treat God like a sugar daddy. Instead, we ought to be approaching God as a suitable bride. But some clear examples of how we do approach God that may be wrong would be selfishly asking God for more money or maybe a new car or a promotion or some award or recognition at work. Or maybe we just ask God to remove our sufferings, whatever that is right now. If it's bad health or just something really hard, we're like, God, just take it away. Selfishly, it's easy to see how those things can be wrong. It's more difficult to see when we may be asking for those things because we want to use them to better serve God. We're asking for more money so we're more stable and can give more money away. Or we're asking for a good reputation so that our neighbors and our friends that we talk to will be more receptive to a gospel conversation. Or maybe we're just asking for health so we can show up at church on Sunday. Now these aren't necessarily bad things by any means, but even these can still have selfish underlying motives. As believers, we must <clears throat> always be ready to set aside our desire, however noble it may be, for God's greater plan. <clears throat> we need to hold our request to God open-handed, knowing that he knows what is truly best. And that sometimes what we think is best just doesn't line up with what he has in mind. And how does James summarize all of this state of mind of walking in friendship or in a wisdom of the world is friendship with the world. Now, for some of you younger people out there, this idea of friendship, it kind of predates um, being Facebook friends. For some of you that are even more younger, Facebook is something where you used to friend people on social media. <laughs> you know, in our culture, friend is now a verb. And you can make a living based off of how many friends you have as a social media influencer. Real friendship, what we see in the Bible, is something that is entirely voluntary in nature. Someone who has chosen to be your friend. Friendship is not something that's fleeting or superficial. It's someone who's always going to be there for you consistently, and they don't have to be. That's what makes a friend different from a family member that has that familial obligation. A friend is there for you through the highs and the lows because they choose to be. Friendship also gives and receives soul-nourishing counsel. That's what makes a friend different from an acquaintance, someone who can approach you and speak into your situation and speak into your life. Proverbs that we look at as like a key to living wisely is full of friendship. Talking about it over and over again, there's something good and wholesome about friendship and living wisely. In the context here where James is writing, friendship was seen as a serious closeness and intimacy, a lifelong pact of shared loyalties. 
you would be identified by your friends. It was part of who you were. This kind of friendship, if you've experienced it, is so sweet. And it can be hard to find sometimes. But when you do, you don't give up on those friends. It's a sweet friendship. But think about this for a minute now. This kind of friendship is what James is saying we have with the world. At least he's saying that to his audience. And I know in this audience, at the very least, I know that I'm a sinner, and I would venture to guess that I'm not the only one. And that at times, we all fall into this category of friending the world. So think about this. James is saying that we have chosen to be friends with the world. Now, he's not speaking about salvation here. He's talking about when we, in what he mentioned in chapter 1, um, when we are enticed and lured away by our own desires. Our friendship with the world is serious and intimate. You are, or your identity is in, the values and priorities of the world. And our souls are being nourished by the remedies of the world, and our wisdom is being informed by the worldly wisdom. John chapter 15 tells us that we are friends with God. When we are in Christ, we are friends with God. This is how we know that James isn't talking about salvation. He's saying, we are friends with God, but we have chosen to walk towards the world. But John chapter 15 Verse 12 says, This is my commandment to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. This is Jesus speaking. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. <clears throat> for all that I have heard from the Father... I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. When we're walking in friendship with God, we get right things from God. But when we don't walk in friendship with God, James says we're committing adultery. It's a graphic picture of betrayal here. Verse 4, back in James, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James sounds like an Old Testament prophet here. He is condemning people for turning their backs on God. It's a common language in the Old Testament. It's even lived out and personified by Hosea, who marries an adulterous wife. James sounds frustrated and desperate, saying, Have you not learned? This isn't something new. 
from the old prophets until now, we've been saying the same thing. You're an adulterer against God. He's like, come on, people. But, you know, maybe, maybe like, he's got the wrong idea. Like, what's really so bad about adultery, right? Most of you probably wouldn't think that. But what does adultery with God have to do with what he was talking about, about wars and infighting with the people of God? You see, worldly friendship, friendship with the world, leads to conflict with God, but it plays out in conflict with others. Adultery doesn't just affect the husband and wife. There's collateral damage. Friends of the family have to choose sides. Kids are traumatized. Possessions are divided. And even the cat on International Cat Day doesn't know where to call home. This is how we end up with wars and infighting with the world. When we are pursuing friendship with the world, or wars and infighting among the body, when we are pursuing the world instead of enjoying our friendship with God. So what is God's response? It's righteous jealousy. This is in contrast to the jealousy that Terry talked about last week, this selfish jealousy. We don't typically think about jealousy as something good. <clears throat> but God's jealousy is unencumbered by bitterness or vain selfish ambition. Nor does it come from a place of insecurities where he's afraid that we have found somebody better or something better. You know, sometimes in worldly adultery, it leads to offspring. Now, a child born out of adultery is innocent and not something to be scared or something that is harmful. But James tells us back in chapter 1, he says, talking about what we mentioned earlier, that is not James. We talked about earlier, um, looking at verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the, test of, stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire when he seeks friendship with the world. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God's not afraid that we found something better. He knows that we've found the very worst. He's jealous for what's best for us, namely himself. His selfish ambition is the only true greater good. But God's not just jealous as an adjective. He's jealous by name. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 34. 
This is God renewing his covenant with the people of Israel after they have committed adultery with him with a golden calf. This is starting in verse 11. It says, Observe what I have commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst, something that leads you and entices you away. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited, you eat of the sacrifice, and you take their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and you make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Cast metal is easy to avoid. We make gods out of everything. This is a picture of what the Israelites did, of being enticed away. God's saying, I am jealous for you. His jealousy is to preserve the covenant he made with his people, to preserve them from death to life as he created us to be. James talks about how God is jealous for the spirit dwelling within us. God created us in his image. He created us, and he is jealous for that spirit that he created within us. He wants that spirit returned to the right relationship as he created us to be. His desire is to bring us back into friendship and communion with him. I think James tells us about this jealousy to remind us that God's desire truly is to have a right relationship with us. He doesn't want us just living in the world and pursuing the things of this world and claiming that we're Christians. He wants friendship with us. And that brings us to the second part of our passage this morning, is that friendship with God. I'm just going to read the second part again. Picking up in verse 4, so you kind of understand where he's coming from. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell within us. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Friendship with God looks like drawing near to God and God drawing near to us. There's an aspect of submission to God and resisting the devil, cleansing and purifying, and that's things that result 
in nearness to God. I think when we read this passage again, it's important to remember that this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not giving you a list of you got to do this, 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 and this, and then you'll be close to God. It's saying when you are in a right relationship with God, you will have clean hands and purified heart because God is doing that within you. And in that, then the devil will flee from you. I've seen people take this passage and others like it and put way too much power in the hands of the enemy. They read this and they're like, all right, what is this telling me about resisting the devil? How do I resist the devil? Where, what are the details on that? Where do I need to go? What's my list? What is my toolkit for how to resist the devil? I had friends um, in the past that everything that went on in their life went back to spiritual warfare, and, which is a real thing. But their focus in all of that was that the enemy is attacking, 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 attacking. And then when something really happened to them, more than just a headache, it was like they got knocked flat because their foundation was in the power of the enemy, not in the power of God. James doesn't give us a lot of details on what it looks like to resist the devil here because he knows that's not his focus. The focus is that we enjoy friendship with God. You know, sometimes in today's culture, um, we get this idea of wanting to be a great hero. Superhero movies, war movies, or gladiator, like Neil mentioned a few weeks ago, um, give us this idea that we need to be, or we want to be, this valiant hero who goes out and slays and vanquishes evil. And we have to get out there before they can cover the world in darkness. James isn't telling us to seek out and combat evil. Or this resistance is not forming a new uh, rebel alliance or anything like that. But he's saying that when we do face temptations, that we have a God who provides a means of escape or enables us to stand fast in him and endure without giving in to sin. I think we've referenced this several times, but um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what our resistance looks like. It's drawing near to God. James is also telling us that we need to cleanse our hands and purify our heart. It's reinforcing that this isn't about the enemy. This is about God. This is about coming before God. See, this idea of cleansing our hands and purifying our heart is temple language. This is um, talking about when you come before God, there is a ceremonial washing that must take place. Jumping back to Exodus, we see that God prescribed a basin for washing before you came before God in the temple and the tabernacle, over and over again, you see that there is this washing that must take place lest we die. In Exodus chapter 30, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stands of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. 
with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and wash their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister to burn food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. There is a washing that must take place when we come before God. Now there's a physical washing here, but we know too that there is a washing of the heart. We also know on this side of the cross that that washing, that cleansing, has taken place in the blood of Christ, in his work on the cross. We'll come back to that. Another thing that James mentions as we go through this is double-mindedness. This term shows up in chapter 1, and it's the only other time in our Bible where double-minded um, as a term is used. In fact, it's one of the only places really that we have evidence of this word existing. So it may be that James, like Paul, kind of made his own word up. But you see from when he introduced this term in chapter 1 until now, he's been painting these contrasting visions. Um, you have one mind that seeks the glory of man, that seeks earthly wisdom, that seeks to be a friend of the world, wants the riches of the world, that's unstable, prideful, that hears and forgets, that has faith without works, quick to speech, quick to anger, it's cursing people, full of doubts, and quarrelsome. This other mind seeks the glory of God. It seeks wisdom from above, is a friend of God, is poor and a friend of the poor, steadfast, humble, that hears and does, that has faith shown by works, slow to speak, slow to anger, blessing the Lord, asking in faith, and peaceable. James is saying, you have two minds. You have to cleanse yourself of this other mind. Everything he's been saying coming up to this is like, this or that, this or that. He's like, no, we need to be single-track minded. We need to be a friend of God. So how then do we cleanse ourselves? It's not something we do on our own. James tells us in verse 6 and later on that it's done by God's abundant grace. It's in this cleansing blood in the cross that we can truly cleanse our mind, purify our heart, and cleanse our hands. Let me read this again. Verse 6, But he gives more grace. We talk about in other passages where it says, But God. This is one of those passages. But God gives more grace. What does this grace look like in this particular passage? It's our conviction of sin, the ability to mourn our sins, and the ability to mourn our adultery is a gift of grace. See, mourning indicates a change in our hearts, not just our actions. It's indicative that God, in his grace, is changing our hearts in the process of sanctification, and that he's drawing us to him. God chose us to be his people. We were of the world. Now we are in Christ. And when we long for the world again, 
God is faithful to complete the work he began in us. And like Hosea, he goes out, seeks us out, and redeems us and brings us back through the work that he continues to do on the cross by giving us more and more grace. It is grace that we can see the severity of our sins and turn to God, our bridegroom. Because we, together, are his bride. Another aspect of this grace is that we can be reconciled to one another because of these quarreling and fights and um, harsh words that exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. The collateral damage as a result of adultery can be repaired in this grace. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but I, I think I will. Um, my parents got a divorce when I was seven, um, and that was hard for me. I grew up as collateral damage. And there was a lot of bitterness between me and my father. And God showed me that I needed to forgive him. And when I was in high school, I realized that and began seeking. And I had a good relationship with my dad at that time. It wasn't evident. I didn't even realize I was still holding bitterness against him. But I realized I had to forgive him because I needed a right relationship with him. So too, one of the most impactful conversations I ever had with him was he, when he expressed to me how much regret he had for how my brother and I were impacted in all of that. This is the kind of mourning and grace that we should be seeking with one another because of how our actions in seeking the world play out among this body. First of all, we should be mournful when we approach God, recognizing our sin. But we need to treat that with each other as well. We ought to be broken by our sin. I came across this quote in one of the uh, commentaries I was studying, and I haven't read this book, but the quote seemed really fitting. Um, it's from uh, Cornelius Plantinga in a book called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, or That's Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It says, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled it, and grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if the sin threatened her very salvation. But that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation 
you have sinned, is often said with a grin and a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Sin is so common in this fallen world that sometimes we become numb to it. And sadly, the same can be said of adultery. But nobody who has experienced adultery would say it's minor, insignificant, or something that isn't hurtful. As we recognize the severity of our sin, God's grace is never less than sufficient. When we turn to him, no matter how bad it is, he gives more grace. In Psalm 51, we see this picture. This psalm was written by David after he had committed adultery and murder, after Nathan the prophet had approached him and called him out saying, you are in sin. We see a picture of David who is humble and mourning his sin. He is asking to be washed to his inmost being and receive a clean heart and a right spirit within him. And he asks to be raised up by God with joy and have his joy restored and have his tongue rightly used to praise God. And in that too, he describes what our true um, sacrifice is that pleases God. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. O oh God, you give more grace. Mourning our sin has a humbling effect. And it humiliates our pride. But God gives more grace. And the more we recognize his grace, the more we recognize the severity of our sin. Um, I asked Danielle to put a, an image up there. Many of you have probably seen this before. But this image indicates that as we grow through the process of sanctification, we realize more and more how sinful we really are. You can see this downward arrow. We are getting worse and worse as we grow in understanding and mourning our sin. And in that, we recognize more and more of how holy God is. So the divide is getting bigger and bigger. But God fills that divide with his work on the cross and his grace, more and more grace. Now is the time for tears and mourning of our sin, that we may be raised up in joy and laughter in the end. There's a great and appealing hum there is a great and appealing humility in a community where people aren't seeking to advance themselves but allowing God to lift them up. Philippians chapter 2 gives us a picture of what this looks like. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. <clears throat> being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When we move with each other in humility, mourning our sins with each other, moving towards God as God moves towards us and draws us to him, we put Christ on display and glorify the Father. This is what we ought to be about as a body. Put Christ on display and glorify the Father. Now for James, drawing near to God was not just some mental or emotional activity. It's a practical response to God. We must work to draw near to God by controlling our tongue, by caring for the poor, by growing in wisdom and seeking peace, and by communing with God in prayer, being humbled enough to ask him for things, and even more humble to receive the things he gives us, even when it's not what we want. And by putting each other's before ourselves. And finally, James is saying that we need to mourn our sins together and humbly confess. And when we confess, we know, as First John tells us, that we will be cleansed and forgiven. And we must work, but only by his grace does this work turn into something of eternal value. This is the difference between the earthly wisdom and the wisdom of God that Terry talked about last week. Earthly wisdom and earthly friendships, or friendship with the world, seeks the immediate temporary satisfaction, whereas wisdom from above and friendship with God has the eternal value of God drawing near to us and drawing us near to him. Father, we just ask that you would be at work among this people, that you would humble us, convict us of our sins, that we may rightly mourn the adultery we have committed against you, and that we may see the collateral damage we have caused among our brothers and sisters in this body, Lord, we thank you that your work gives more grace, that you are never less than sufficient. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, we've got a song in preparation for the supper. If you did not get on your way in, um, I believe there's some more supper elements over there. Or if you cannot get to that, just raise your hand and we will make sure that somebody gets that to you. But I want to introduce the supper real quick with a passage from where Paul talks about the supper in 1 Corinthians. 
after the instructions for the supper, um, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drink, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul's instructing us that we need to have the right mind about our sin when we come to the supper and our state between our brothers and sisters in the body. To spend this song enjoying Christ and this truth about him, but ask for forgiveness for your sin. Ask for conviction of your sin if you don't feel guilty about it. And we'll be back in a few minutes to partake in the supper. Mm -hmm.